Hello and welcome back to Prog Notes. This is Destin. This episode is separated into two parts to assist with time. The episode went a little longer than expected, so be sure to check out the second part to hear the rest of the record. But first, here is part one of Tales of Mystery and Imagination by the Alan Parsons Project. Hello and welcome to Prague Notes. My name is Destin. And I'm Drew. And today we are listening to Tales of Mystery and Imagination by the Alan Parsons Project. And today we have a special guest. Drew, would you like to introduce our special guest that we have? Yeah, you've heard her before, folks, on our fourth episode, talking about Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. It is my wonderful big sister, Rachel Brown. Rachel, Rachel thank you so Brown. much. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Whoa! Yeah, I ripped that off of the internet. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, thanks, Rachel, for coming. Um, This could be great. So, uh, thank you for thank you again, everybody, for listening to this episode. If you've never listened to our show, what we do here is we educate and hopefully inspire all of our listeners to uncover and learn more about this subgenre by listening and talking about albums from the progressive rock archives that you may have possibly never heard of or want to learn more about. Uh, We all have a big passion for the albums that we talk about, as well as progressive rock, and we love to share it with others. And to everyone who has been listening to our episodes, we'd like to say thank you, and please subscribe to our podcast so you can always be notified when we launch a brand new episode. So, the Alan Parsons Project is uh, consists of two writers slash composers, so to speak, uh, Mr. Alan Parsons and Eric Wolfson. Um, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna try that with a Scottish accent. I'm just gonna leave it at Wolfson. Is he so, Scottish? He is Scottish. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, obviously, he I, must be yeah, because you're going to so, attempt the Scottish accent. I won't be right. attempting that either. Uh, yeah, so. I'm not going to try it. I'm not going to try it. I'm just going to leave that be. But, so Alan Parsons uh, being a musician and an audio engineer and a record producer and Eric Wolfson being a songwriter, lyricist, and pianist, this what I call songwriter-producer duo went to sell over 50 million albums as the nucleus of the project between 1975 and... 1990. This is their debut album, released May 1st of 1976, recorded at Abbey Road Studios with a budget that modern-day prog bands can only freaking dream of. Um, Tales of Mystery Imagination comprises of 11 tracks based on the works of the great American Gothic writer Edgar Allan Poe, and at the time was pretty remarkable in its ambition and execution, as well as its uniqueness as Alan Parsons and Eric Wolfson orchestrated an ever-changing lineup of session players and vocalists that included actor-singer Leonard Whiting, John Miles, Terry Sylvester from the Hollies, and the great Arthur Brown. So Parsons and Wolfson cleverly, I, I think, enlisted all of Parsons' production clients as backing musicians for this record. Uh, so there's all kinds of people from the band uh, Ambrosia and Pilot. I think that's how you pronounce yeah, it. Yeah, Pilot. Ambrosia. I think Ambrosia, yeah. Ambrosia and Pilot. So, Which if you listen to a lot of schmaltzy 70s music, like AM Gold, like right. I actually do sometimes, yeah. you will know who Ambrosia and yes, Pilot are. Yes, I'm not yeah. very familiar with them. You know. Um, yeah. <laughs> no, you that's wouldn't. That's good. So uh, strangely enough, though, the neither Pilot singer... Uh, or Ambrosia's lead singer are employed as lead vocalists on this album. They're actually all exclusively just as guitarists. So uh, there are two featured instrumentals here, and the reason why I want to give this layout for everybody is because when we start talking about, we are going to do a track-by-track list and discussion of all of these songs um, with uh, different perspectives, because uh, each song in this record is so incredibly unique uh, that we wanted to give each uh, each song its own time to shine. So um, the uh, two featured instrumentals here, the album opening, Dream Within a Dream, and the 16-minute Larger Than Life, The Fall of the House of Usher, uh, which is the latter of acoustic work from the Wings member, uh, or future Wings member, uh, Lawrence Juber, as well as orchestrations and conduct- conducted and arranged by Andrew Powell, uh, who in fact actually was the producer of Kate Bush's debut album it's just weird connections here uh kate bush is like a like a british pop i think kind of pop singer um drew have you ever heard of kate bush no i have not no okay never mind uh and so <laughs> i want to uh, list this as well we uh the, on the 19 
87 remix, there is a uh, some narration that was added, and and Parsons went back and did some extra production work. Um, Orson Welles was then added with some extra narration, which we will talk about. And we will be listening to the 1987 mix for this episode because this album has so much history. Like I said, we're going to talk about each individual song to give a good glimpse into it. So, guys, how you guys feeling? Good. Pretty good. Uh, yeah. I'm feeling pretty good, too. Feeling pretty great. Okay, awesome. So let's first talk about uh, Alan Parsons and Eric Wolfson for a little bit. The Alan Parsons Project. Drew, who who is Alan Parsons? Alan Parsons, uh, gosh, you said that as if it were like the question on like a test or something like that. Who it, is um, Alan Parsons? Who is Alan Parsons? Make sure you show all work for who full Who is credit. John Galt? Um, so, uh, Thank you for that reference. English. All right. We're going to be digging into a pose, so let's pull out yeah, Ayn Rand go. as well. Yeah, exactly. We're going <laughs> to pull out everything. Um, anyways, so um, Alan Parsons, we've discussed briefly on the show before, especially with our second episode, Dark Side of the Moon, uh, by Pink Floyd, because he was the engineer behind that. And I think with this album that we're about to review, you can definitely tell that. Absolutely. <laughs> um, we also mentioned him a little bit as having found a lot of inspiration from Sgt. Pepper's uh, on our fourth episode. So, uh, guys, definitely super creative. Um, oh, definitely. And, and when, I, when I say that you can tell he worked on it, he, he employs a lot of the same artistry. I guess is the right word um, that that he he really likes to immerse uh, people with his music in in an atmosphere and kind of block everything else out. You know, he, this is stuff that's very artistic, something that's supposed to be actively listened to, uh, and he does a great job. You know, he uses sound effects, he makes everything kind of sound really big and and as if you're in uh, transported to a different world. You know, and yeah. and he's very centered on making sure that the music that you're listening to is a, a story, at least with this album. And, and he did that with, with Dark Side of the Moon as well. Um, so pretty conceptual, and, and that shows in this album for sure. Yeah, yeah, and and, and Alan Parsons is uh, certainly, he, uh, he started as an assistant engineer at Abbey Road Studios and kind of worked his way into working on other projects. And then he engineered Dark Side of the Moon, which is, I mean, that probably just exploded them into quote-unquote fame. I don't know how much fame a record producer had in the seventies, but either way, uh, he got a lot of money. Let's just put it that way. You know, paid a lot of money. And, and especially for me, I, when I first, uh, when I, I would think about like the context of being in 1976, when this was released and Alan Parsons is releasing, you know, it's like the Alan Parsons project. I would think that this is just some kind of studio, uh, fun time. You know, I got, I got some money, you know, why don't I do something pretty creative and create something, with Edgar Allan Poe and it's kind of like this cult life cult like um, audience, so to speak, that who would be listening to it. And uh, I thought it was just kind of a studio, kind of a studio gag, you know, just messing around with, with, with whatever. But um, yeah, that's, it's, it's interesting though, because they obviously never, well, they didn't tour until like the 1990 and, and, but, but they had multiple albums that came after this. And I honestly think that this one was the most prog influenced. Would you, would you agree yeah. with that? Well, um, yeah, probably. And, and that's something I wanted to bring up is cause I, I think that on the last episode I mentioned saying, Hey, every 10th episode, we wanted to do something that could definitely be argued could make its way into the realm of progressive rock, or at least part of its foot could be put in the door. Uh, but not one of the pioneers or something that a lot of people would consider that. A lot of music historians would consider that. I think this fits. Um, you know, there there are arguments on on <clears throat> several sides, but I, I would say that this could make it way make its way into our show uh, because of a couple different things. Uh, one is the use of classical instruments, which we yeah. said, um, and, and classical influences, which we've mentioned several times on the show before, which makes its way into prog rock. Um, two that um, it's a concept album because there is a unifying theme throughout, which is what we were talking about earlier, Edgar Allan Poe's works. Um, and third, the long arrangements. Uh, there are some longer arrangements on here, which is kind of a, a land, not landmark, but a, an identifiable uh, characteristic of a lot of progressive rock. Is sure. that it's long. And the second half of this album is almost the entire second half is one song besides yeah. the exception of one. It's one continuous piece divided up into sections, which we've done several times with a lot of other albums on the show. Um, 
so uh, yeah, I would say those three definitely allow it to be argued for uh, progressive rock. And oh, certainly, uh, maybe this is something to that would take too long to discuss. Um, but an interesting conversation to have is: is there a difference between progressive rock and art rock? And if there is, is this more art rock or is it more progressive rock? And I think part of the fact is that this one is similar to Pink Floyd in in a sense that it's not overly technical. Um, sure. There's, you know, the time signatures aren't too odd. Um, the bass riffs and the vocals aren't too difficult to sing. Um, you know, I don't hear this album and think virtuosity. I think this and I think super artistic and uh, kind of similar with Pink Floyd. Mm-hmm. But um, as we mentioned earlier, even on our first episode, I think is, uh, you know, art rock and prog rock or well, we really discussed it, I think, on Sgt. Pepper's as well. Um, they're, they're kind of synonymous. You know, when someone mentions art rock, I, I think a lot of a lot of bands that um, can be pulled into the pool of prog rock as well. And this album uh, I, I see is, you know, kind of both, because I, I kind of, you know, relate both of those terms together, art and prog. Um, but just real quick, and, and you may already have this note as well, Dustin, but in July 2010... This album was on the list uh, of 50 albums that built prog rock in a classic rock magazine. I didn't know that. Entry. I didn't so, know that. So uh, something interesting to note. So anyways, uh, that I'm is my argument for why it's prog rock. Um, but uh, I just wanted to, to disclaim that uh, yeah. real quick. Yeah, well, I, I, I certainly, <laughs> I mean, I would agree with you and, and whoever, you know, claimed it to be in the top 50 because it, I think it had a, a fantastic impact on on prog rock in terms of just kind of the the artistic ability but also i think i i don't and rachel i'd like your input on this but i don't i don't really know a bunch of other albums that really had a centerpiece uh, or a, a center point or focus on i guess on poetry in 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 music by, by the yeah like a literature yeah. or a poet or poetry um and, and correct does anybody i don't know if you guys well animals by pink floyd that's is true. about is based off of animal farm sure. but, yeah. but but with what you're saying dustin this whole thing is based on one author not one piece yes. which is yes, really exactly. interesting exactly. it's a collection of works by of... one specific author and to that point i can't think of anything right. like that personally well and i think that also because if you're gonna do something on poe um he wrote mainly short stories, right? I mean, he did have longer works. I have his huge tome right beside me as we're recording this right now. That's right. Um, and the, <laughs> like the last, you know, several hundred pages is an actual novella that, you know, that he wrote, which I've never read anything by Poe that was longer than several, well, you know, like 10 pages maybe. So his short stories are um, the basis of his work as well as his poetry. And then he did have several, like he did a lot of essay writing as well, which is what, mm-hmm. you know, we'll go into this later, but that's where Orson Welles, you know, uh, narration mm-hmm. is pulled from is the essays and not from any right. specific work. But um, yeah, I mean, yeah, contrary to, or in juxtaposition to rather um, animals, like you mentioned, Drew, that's one work, you know, um, that you know, even though that's more like a novella as well, it is a shorter, you know, work of fiction. It's not like, okay, I'm going to try to do an entire album on just Edgar Allan Poe's Telltale Heart. Right. That I feel like that would be challenging because um, even though there are multiple concepts within just one work of Poe's because he's a fantastic writer, um, I still think it would be hard to get out, you know, at least a 45 minute album yeah. on just one of his works. Yeah, I agree. And I think that, I think that fits with this really well because each, each individual song matches with a poem by Edgar Allan Poe. Is that right? Well, a poem or, or a short, short story. story. Or a short story. Okay. Right. Yeah. Poem or well, short story. I want to make sure mm-hmm. I got that right. Yeah. Real quick, this isn't important, but I just want everyone to know. I thought the idea of this is just really interesting and brilliant in general to what we just talked about. Basing your your entire album off of one author, I think, is creative. So I probably would have been mm-hmm. inclined to like it already. But yeah. Quick disclaimer, if I had to pick a favorite author, it would probably be Edgar Allan Poe. So this, I am a little bit biased towards, I really enjoy this record because yeah, I love that's okay. That's okay, the Drew. music. And well, he's one of my tops as well. So. Well, I'm just saying, I like him. <laughs> that's all I'm saying. He's okay? great. You can like him. Oh, well, and I like him a lot. No, no, nay, you should like him. Oh. <laughs> Shoot. <laughs> Throwing my opinions around there. Oh my gosh. So... <laughs> Well, uh, let's. Uh, so Eric Eric Wolfson, I don't know. We we probably. I mean, I honestly have never really heard his name before 
uh, even before you can't re- even pronounce it. Yeah, Eric Eric correctly. Wolfson. Yeah, <laughs> if, if I'm pronounce it Wolfson Wolfson, I don't know. <laughs> um, Bayo Wolfson, I don't know. Um, but uh, so but he is a uh, like like we were mentioned before is a a lyricist, and I think he wrote the majority of the lyrics, um, uh, on on the record. But and he's also a pianist, which he gets certain piano credits as well. Um, I didn't actually know this. It's just a fun fact about Eric Wolfson. But he actually went on to write music for the stage. Um, afterwards, he actually uh, collaborated with Andrew Lloyd Webber, um, which for anybody who's uh, super oh, wow. into stage, obviously that was uh, I forget a lot of the major works that he did. I just know that his name is uh, very well known in the. Uh, Stage. Oh, yeah. What is what is what has he done, Drew? Are you Phantom of the Opera? Phantom oh, of the, Phantom yes. the Opera. Um, that's cats. huge. Yes. And then of course Cats. Cats. Yeah. Yeah. So which Cats, interestingly enough, is taken all from works of poetry by T. S. Eliot, okay. who is also very famous. You know, like yeah. if you do any kind of, if you're any kind of English major, you know, like me, or just it, even like it, just growing up in in high school or right. whatever, you're probably going to read some poetry by Poe, and you're probably going to read some poetry by T. S. Eliot. Right. So. Yeah, yeah. So he he worked alongside with him uh, in in the future of of his career because I believe he actually after after 1990 I don't think he actually did any of the touring with Alan Parsons. Alan Parsons did go d- and do the tours with his band that he he created, but Eric Wolfson didn't come with him. Um, so he that's that's kind of his his role in the band. But this is kind of like a uh, Steely Dan revolving door of session musicians. And, and we'll mention each one of them on, on, uh, each song, um, uh, is, and well, never mind. I guess I should probably specify if people don't know the Steely Dan, like every single song has different musicians playing on it. Like they're, they're all just people that were brought from outer sources to be like, Hey, you want to play drums on this track? Cool. And, and that's how, that's how it was created. So, um, so let's go ahead and go into the, uh, unless anybody else has any other thoughts about Alan Parsons project or, um, anything in general overview of the record before we go into the first song, anything. Did you already mention that it reached 38 on, on the billboard? I didn't, pop out, album I didn't know, but, um, that doesn't, uh, that doesn't surprise me though. Yeah. Honestly, it's a. It's, I was I was surprised when I looked this up. Uh, first off, that um, this is the debut album of them, and it sounds so polished oh, and so yeah. well like refined, very conceptual, very interesting, and almost daring endeavor to to undertake something so conceptual mm-hmm. um, and honestly a little bit cerebral, right? Um, as their first album. Oh, of course. Uh, first off, and second off, that it actually had somewhat good reception, uh, or or you know successful. Um, yeah reception afterwards that I, you know, I think that Dr. Tar and professor feather, which we'll, we'll listen to. Well, we did listen to. Yeah. We'll listen um, to it again. That, that actually had some, some good success too. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that you know, was, they're not totally yeah. underground. Uh, but, uh, I was, I was a little surprised by that, that it did so well for something very conceptual. Yeah. So anyways, that's cool. all. All right. Well, uh, let's go ahead and, uh, and dive into a dream within a dream, which is obviously based off of a short story or poem. Which one is it? It's, it's a, a poem. poem. Okay. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know much about Poe, so I apologize. I know music, but I don't know <laughs> Poe. Um, which is why Rachel is here. <laughs> Yay! For I'll forgive Rachel. you. I'll forgive you, Destin. Yes. Okay, the clap. Yep. All right, here we go. That's just classic right there. Okay, so let's go ahead and go into Dream Within a Dream. So the opening of this record is very um, I wouldn't really say iconic, but very it sets the tone real quick. And um, this is the uh, narration by Orson Welles, uh, which was which was put on here in 1987, like we said. And uh, we'll go ahead and take a listen to this. So here we go. For my own part, I have never had a thought which I could not set down in words with even more distinctness than that which I conceived it. There is, however, a class of fancies of exquisite delicacy which are not thoughts, and to which as yet I have found it absolutely impossible to adapt to language. These fancies arise in the soul, alas, how rarely, only at epochs of most intense tranquility, when the bodily and mental health are in perfection, and at those mere points of time where the confines of the waking world blend with the world of dreams. And so I captured this fancy where all that we see, 
or seen is but a dream within a dream. So that that entire intro to me, like, has this. Um, it's so funny to me. Like, it feels like I'm walking in like some kind of like, like some kind of exhibit, like with like a bunch of fog and it's like low light. Like, I don't know. I don't know why, but like, I, I'm like picturing myself like walking through like this really like like kind of like rainforest. And it's like this like this fog or something. Like, I don't know. It just kind of like has that kind of that mood to it. But. Um, that is a uh, super interesting way to open the record, but so proper at the same time. Like I think that I think that's excellent. Just opening it with the narration, and it really just sets the tone of of uh, what's to come for the rest of the record. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, this is a really cool groove. Oh, yeah. Also. Oh yeah. Dream within I a dream. Love is, this oh, yeah. Really neat. Uh, but it's it's cool because they they the. <sighs> It's bubbling underneath the music underneath. That's yes. that's the word that comes to mind. Is something's bubbling like that. underneath. Oh, I like that. And then, uh, oh, I like that. And then, it 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 comes into this really neat, very cool, mellow groove. Yeah. Um. But uh. But yeah, no, I I, I love that beginning. And Orson Welles' voice is so. It's just. Who doesn't brilliant. like it's, Orson it's, Welles? I know. I mean, who doesn't like Orson Welles? <laughs> Maybe people who have worked with him. Probably. I don't know. Um, I, don't, I don't know if he was that kind of guy or not. He might have been. I have a feeling he could probably be a bit intense. Yeah, uh, I bet he could. I mean, from, just considering he I've... like wrote, directed, and starred in his and own started. movie. You know, yeah, I mean, yeah. he probably was a very yeah. pompous kind of guy. Incredibly talented. Right. But yeah. probably very yeah. pompous. I, I, can, I imagine him of kind of like the Roger Waters of film. Yeah. yeah you know yeah. what I mean? Like, it's, <laughs> it's mine! Yeah. You know, <laughs> like, all that we see or see, super intense. But yeah, this this is a great opening track too. I mean, it's it's like it's a without the narr besides the narration, of course, it, it is it is completely um, uh, instrumental. It's, it's of course, yeah. It, it reminds me of Pink Floyd. It really, in a sense. dude. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I, I'm uh, I'm gonna go into that later when we get into a different track because there there are a bunch of similarities to, to Pink Floyd stuff that I hear in this, and it's it's so interesting that I um that I, I picked up a couple of things and I'll play them for you actually later. Which in the shouldn't be surprising considering Alan Parsons was exactly the engineer for Dark exactly. Side, especially something uh, in Pink Floyd's career just three years prior to this. Right. You know, he's fresh off of doing something, yes. you know, which is very different from Pink Floyd's later career of doing The Wall. I mean, you juxtapose The Wall and Dark Side, yeah. you know, and they're both very different. And this definitely has the feel closer to Dark Side, possibly even like leading into Animals, yeah. which the, it's interesting that this album was right between, you know, Dark Side and Animals. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It's just—it's not a coincidence. It can't. Oh be, no! You know? No, I, I, of course not. And it's something I find incredibly interesting is that he, Alan, turned down engineering. Wish you were here to do this. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Wow. It's also right? interesting considering that it is both that Pink Floyd album is David Gilmore's favorite yeah. Pink Floyd album. Wish which you were is, here. Sorry. Interesting. Yeah. Yes, it is. Yeah. yeah. But that oh, that man. blew my mind because obviously Wish You Were Here was was obviously released in 75 and that mm -hmm. that i mean and this was released in 76 so when he got offered the job he turned it down to do this and i was like dude that's ballsy mm -hmm. really that's yeah. i mean you you had any you had like the most groundbreaking like album success with with the band and you turned down the next album to do mm -hmm. to do something that you wanted like something ambitious that i was like no i, I have an idea that I really want to do, and I want to put effort towards doing that. That that's in, incredible to me. Um, I don't even yeah. know if I would do that. Seriously, I mean, if I had, a, I mean, you're like I, I, I can do that later. Like I always have that idea. I can, I can just, I exactly. can just push it off until later. But I'm gonna keep working with Pink Floyd because, for God's sake, we just sold, you know, 100 million albums or 100, you know, whatever with with my last album that I just engineered for him, and uh, and had a yeah. bunch of success from it. So I've always found that to be incredibly interesting. But, um, 
this is just uh, yeah. There's not much else to say about this song other than it's it's groovy. Well, it's I th- I think a, a a fun fact to to throw in there is from what I read, which who knows how credible it is, but from what I read, Orson Welles like they didn't commission him or hire him to do this for the album. Orson Welles did this on his own. He narrated this on his own because he heard the 1976 version. Right, yeah. the original without his voice, and he was like, "This is really neat, and I want to delve into Edgar Allan Poe, and I think this is awesome, and really figure this out." And um, you know, I don't know if that's the right phrase to use, but he was really inspired by this album, so he started reading more of Edgar Allan's stuff, um, which was, you know, both the fiction and the nonfiction. Like Rachel sa- said, uh, Poe was, you know, an essayist as well, yeah, and an editor. Right, he was all about language, as we just read uh because that quote from him <laughs> there's never been a thought that i could not adapt to language <laughs> with even more distinctness with with what with that which i conceived it um but he did it on his own and sent it to parsons and wolfson and said hey this was just inspired me just wanted to, to show you this and he just had a tape recording of that and they were like this is awesome and so later on when they did the 87 version they were like we gotta put this in here huh um which I just found interesting that they didn't hire him. They didn't seek him yeah. out or anything. He just liked the album, sent a tape to him, and they said, cool, that's going on the next remix of this. Yeah, that is a so. cool. Yeah, that is that is really interesting. Yeah. I, I also want to throw in this little footnote here. I actually, um, uh, before going on to the next song, I wanted to listen to this one before I, before I made this comment. Um, but I, I always thought that the the brain behind the, the conception uh, I guess the, the brain behind the idea to do this record was from Alan. Like, I, I don't know why I just thought that was kind of his idea. Um, but I actually found a story um, from Eric. You guys like stories? You want me to tell you a story? Yeah, I, like, okay, I do great. like stories. Tell me yeah, the I'm going to tell you the story. I wasn't going to tell it to you anyway. So, um, shoot. Yeah, I didn't think I had an yeah, option. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. So this is, this is what it is. This is what I found here. Um, Eric uh, recalls. Now, this is recalls uh, walking to school in Glasgow, and he had to pass various cinemas, which often had Edgar Allan Poe film posters on display. So he uh, he says that he particularly remembers the pit and the pendulum, the raven and the fall of the house of Usher. So but Eric was way too young to see these movies, but was intrigued by the uh, by this forbidden fruit, quote unquote, when he later in the 60s attended some of the evening marketing marketing classes and attempting to describe the new marketing concept, the lecturer mentioned a marketing statistic, namely that no film from Edgar Allan Poe's work ever lost money. Eric was struck by the idea that this were true, then perhaps on the album inspired by his work might not lose money either, and this was the genesis of Tales of Mystery Imagination. Wow. Wow. Um, That is so cool. So, hey, if this guy isn't going to lose money, then (laughs) let's just create an album by it. You know, he was while he was in school and, and, uh, Heard, heard a statistic by that, and he was, you know, not, nothing by Edgar Allan Poe's work has ever lost money. And right to be like, oh, really? Oh, shoot. Well, I that's, need to write an album about it because it's not, it's going to be, it's going to be huge. I'm guaranteed to make money right. on this. Exactly. That's a good enough it's reason. It's a good enough yeah. reason to do that. Um, but anyway, I thought that was interesting because I, I just assumed that Alan would be the one like, oh, I want to do this. And I'm, you know, because I, I just, I just assumed he was kind of the, the studio guy to be like, let's bring in this, let's bring in this, let's put this together, let's create this. Um, but uh, I think it was actually more of uh, Eric's concept. And then Alan was just had the ability to throw it in motion kind of thing. Um, so anyway, right. I just wanted to throw that in there because it's pretty cool. Let's take a listen to The Raven, at least the just the very beginning of it, before we start talking about it. So just a little fun fact about this song. Uh, according to what I found, I don't, I, and I can't say this is for certain, but this is the first time that the EMI vocoder was ever used in rock music was in the song right here. Yes, that's, that's what the, I read. Yeah, that I as well. Yeah, um, which is super sweet. I think that's actually Alan Parsons doing that too. Um, 
He, he, yeah, he is the one so. in the EMI vocoder. And then the rest of the song is by is sung by uh, Leonard Whitting or Whiting. Probably Whiting. Probably Whiting. Um, but either way. So uh, pretty cool. But dude, actually, Drew, I wanted to, I wanted to ask you about this because uh, you're a bass player. I love it's it's I mean it's so simple, but like, do you hear how just round and clean that bass sound is? Oh, I, I don't, absolutely. I don't know. I mean, I don't know how or where, whatever. But it is just every time I hear that, it's just so like pure. And just that doom, doom, doom. Like it's just so. I love it. It's so freaking oh, I agree. cool. It's just it's like you say, yeah. round. It's very well rounded. Yes. Yeah. No, I, I totally yeah. noticed that. It's something that shocks me every time yeah. I hear it. Like I just forget about it. You know, just it's so simple. I don't know why, but then I, I listen to it again and I'm like, whoa, this is just so fitting for the song. Also, just a really quick opinion here. That is one of my all time like just favorite just the way the song opens with with that vocoder when it gets a little bit louder with the to my amazement there stood mm -hmm. the raven. That I mean, it hits me every time. It's one of the most chilling and powerful, what I like to call, quote, uh, like a musical punch. Right. That feeling when a song kind of punches you with its intensity. And like nowadays that might be called like the drop in like an EDM or sure. a dubstep yeah. song. But it just, that, that part where it's like, okay, everything kind of silenced for a second and then it just hits you really hard. That, to me, that moment where, where he, he says that, to my amazement, there stood the raven. It's so haunting and powerful. And you can really, to me, I can really see like the man like turning his head and seeing this creepy raven just staring at him with a blank face, like in this dark, really dimly uh, lit room. Yeah. And just, I mean, you know, and, and Poe does a great job of, in his writing, writing, like you said, very gothic, very macabre. Yep. And um, I, I love the way that 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 says. It's very soft vocal at the beginning, and then it just gets loud with "To My Amazement." There's to the raven, and then the drums start to come in, and it's not like a huge crash like you would expect. It's mainly just kick drum and snare, but it's so good. Yeah, um, yeah. it's a good but, way. It, yeah, it, it, sorry, it, it, I just it, had to say that's one of my absolute favorite moments. Yeah, I mean, it, it builds energy incredibly well, and, and it's just it's just the way that the whole song is constructed. It's 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 genius. Um, but but Rachel, yeah. I have a question for you. I wanted to ask you the the relationship. Well, because you're you're very familiar with with Pose, or you're probably very familiar with the with the Raven. Yes, although it had been quite a while since I had read it. You know, it's been a hot minute. Um, yeah, it, it has been a hot minute. Um, yeah, because and there's I, so I much going to... <laughs> on in all of his work. You know, right? Um, but fire away, and I'll make sure I can try. Yeah, to yeah. Well, I I wanted I wanted to ask you if the do the emotions match up when you read the Raven versus when you listen to this song? Like when, when you, when you read the Raven and you have the, you have whatever the feeling is that you're feeling while reading it, whether it's, you know, like love, despair, hate, sadness, whatever it may be, does that match with the musical interpretation in your opinion, uh, to this, to this song? Um, yes and no. Um, okay. The, the vocoder, that's used the the um, effect of the voice and the lyrics themselves. Um, absolutely, like what Drew was mentioning, um, the to my amazement, there stood a raven. You know, the, the I, um, I, I kind of want to make this clear first, just for anybody that's listening. Um, when I first listened to this album, it had been a long time since I'd read anything by Poe, because um, I think I I discovered it at some some point during college or no, 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 it was right after college. And I probably hadn't really read any Poe, um, since high school, maybe a work or two in college. Um, but the lyrics are not actual lyrics or, you know, are not taken word for word from his work. And I, right. I had to remind myself that this isn't actually, um, word for word, especially with, except, um, to one in paradise at the very end. And we can talk about that when we get there. Um, yeah because they decide to end it actually with a piece you know, or um, clip from his um, poem. But so none of those actual lyrics are in, I mean, if, except for, of course, Nevermore being the refrain of The Raven. But I guess whenever I first read The Raven, I find it a little bit more, I mean, there's definitely a haunting effect to the song, but when it picks mm -hmm. up, it's not necessarily as yeah. haunting. I mean, there is that feeling but it's not necessarily as creepy um 
But yeah, like the guitar solo kind of just breaks right. that. that a I was about to say, bit. there's something in it that kind of pulls that away, but then it gets quiet again. And like, so those moments that, um, the, like I said, the effect on the voice, as well as um, some of the more delicate moments in the piece, to me, definitely reflect the Raven. Okay. Um, yeah. So I, to me, this one's a yes and a no, but at the same time, I love the piece, um, the, mm -hmm. the poem, as well as the the song. Like I as wouldn't, song, I wouldn't yeah. want the song to sound any other way, but right. it may not be an exact reflection of the feeling that I get when I read the Raven. Right. Okay. Yeah. I, I think that actually adds more to the creativity. The fact that they mm -hmm. didn't use the poetry word for word, they didn't use the short stories word for word. Like they they wrote concepts to his work, which I think is even more creative than just ripping it. You know what I mean? Uh, which is right. which is pretty cool, but I I love the uh, the jam of of this song too. This that that entire kind of last half of it with the, oh, with, yeah. the back, with the backing vocals and everything, and uh, the guitar solo was actually added on the '87 version, I think, um, according to what I found. Yeah, um, which was which is done so, by yeah. He added additional riffs as well as the Orson yep, Welles track. Yep, yep, and interesting. So so yeah, what what's up? Something that he does throughout just this whole album. Uh, he loves choirs. Absolutely. He loves kind of this. Oh, yes. And he loves having that throughout a lot of the works in this album, which, you know, that, that element really does to me, bring you kind of transport you a little bit back in time. Right. It's almost like this choir of, you know, you know, old timey people trying to city. Haunt you. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah, kind of this haunting feeling. Right. And he does that with a, a lot of the songs throughout this album. Uh, which is a fantastic thing. It's a great thing to employ. Um, and you got but, and you uh, got a note. You got a yeah. note as well. This is 1976. We can't just pull up a keyboard patch and play a choir. You got to get the choir. You know what I mean? Right. Which is, which exactly. is all more impressive. And you know when they had the budget of you know going to the moon, you, you can make that. You can make that. Right. Happen. And you can tell. I mean, and that's the other thing is you can tell that it's not a synthesized choir either. Yeah, you can absolutely tell that he wrangled up a bunch of, of people yeah. who are well versed in music theory yep. to to sing yeah. all this. So. I think on the on the liner notes um, here it says that the choir is Bob Howes and the English Chorale. Um, so just throwing that out there. But also, I think the uh, uh, it is is I think it's actually noted as the Westminster City Schoolboys Choir. Interesting. So yeah, it's it's also interesting, like like you said, that this was you know kind of an inspiration from the poem and not a direct word for word. And you can tell because a huge part yeah. of the poem, if I'm not mistaken, it's been a while since I've read it too. I think Rachel read it more recently in preparation for this, whereas I did not, unfortunately. But uh, I know a lot of it centers around his love for his lost love, Lenore. And I don't think I hear yes. the name Lenore in these lyrics mm -hmm. at all, which is a huge right. part of the poem itself. So yes. this yeah. just really but deals also with... pretty personal yeah. as well. I'm assuming. Well, uh, yeah, because it was an actual it's an actual person, right? No, I don't think so. Lenore is a fictional character. Yes, that he created. Okay, okay, okay. Though a lot of his uh, kind of love thing was inspired by um, his wife, which I think was also wasn't it his cousin? It was some weird stuff. Well, it was the 1800s. So I... really <laughs> wow, I love how Rachel just easily gives that pass. It was a well... different time. So <laughs> my cousin. Well, gosh, funny. it was a All different right, time. Not implying that I want to marry my cousin. I don't have any male cousins, Gosh. and I'm not a lesbian, so. There you go. God bless. All right. Well, any any last thoughts on the Raven before we move on to the to the next song? It's 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 a fantastic track. Uh, it, just 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 from you know outside of uh, you know any of the the Poe content that's in it, like the musically, it's it's a wonderful, it's a fantastic song. It's catchy, which is part of the appeal um outside of because obviously i mean you know to, to make it 38 on the on the billboard charts as you said drew like you know it, it's gotta it's gotta have something other than oh it's on edgar Allan poe in order for it you know in order for it to be huge <laughs> yeah. and i mean it's like but uh but i i wonder if because obviously this didn't lose money i wonder if anything by edgar Allan poe has lost money still today hmm very. Come back next episode and we'll talk about it. <laughs> so either way, let's let's move on to the next track. This is uh, the Telltale tell tell Heart. Oh, that's actually pretty difficult to say. Jeez, dang it, Dustin. Whoa. Um, Messing yeah. up my favorite one. Yeah, I'm sorry. All right, here here's tell here's Telltale Heart. 
the first thing that, that that stands out to me in this song is is the lead vocal. Arthur, Arthur Brown, it's so theatric. It can't help but stand out. I mean that oh, that yeah, beginning yeah, I mean, that is so vocal. The, it, the throat, like you can hear everything. It's like he's gargling water. It's insane. Yeah, it, I mean, <laughs> yeah, it really is. It's, it's very impressive. Yeah, and uh, and I actually looked up Arthur Brown because I wasn't very familiar with Arthur Brown, but he was a. Uh, um, I think he, like, his most prominent work with that was actually just with his name, Arthur Brown. I think that he was just like he's Arthur Brown. Um, and so, uh, but his, his work, and I kind of looked up and he, he's known for having a very, very wide range of vocal and having very theatric and upper operatic. Is that, is that yeah. a word? Yeah, it is operatic. operatic. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was thinking. For some reason, I thought it wasn't when I said it. Um, yeah, very, very theatric vocals. And so, and I think that fits this very well because I, I read a little bit of Telltale Heart and it's, um, it, it, Arthur Brown's voice certainly fits kind of the vibe I think they're going for or that they wanted to portray about the song. Sure. Uh, yeah. And if, if, you know, for, um, I, I couldn't think of any other way why they would, any other reason why they would want Arthur Brown to sing on this song unless they were trying to portray something because his voice is just so out there. Well, it does uh, a good job. His voice specifically that, that piece of this track does a great job. I think of capturing the lunacy of the character in the short story, right? The, yes. the, the main character in that is completely going insane. I mean, that's part of what this whole thing is about, is he's going insane, you know, due to guilt and, and all that stuff. And there are some other things, too, going on there. Um, but uh, he does a really good job of kind of giving this sense of, whoa, this guy is totally out of it. You know, e even if it's not the voice that, that you hear when reading the piece, it's, uh, it's still insane. Uh, which is yes. which is what the character is. So <laughs> yeah, what they're going for. So, um, but Rachel, this is your this is your favorite. The piece is not my favorite, um, but this is my absolutely favorite um, work by Edgar Allan Poe of all time. Oh really? Oh, oh yeah. wow. Okay, cool. Yeah. Well, what's what's your uh, what's your opinion on the, uh, I guess the the interpretation of of the music for, for the for the poem, mm. coming at it from more of the, did you did you read? I'm I'm assuming that you. Read Poe's stuff before listening to this record. Absolutely. Okay. Oh yeah. Okay. And th this one grabbed me from the very first, and I've read lots of okay. other stuff by him, you know, along the way as well. Um, there were a few, um, I had, you know, pieces that I had not read until I listened to this, um, but most of them I had. But this one was probably the first, if not one of the first, um, pieces by Edgar Allan Poe that I ever read. And oh wow. It, has remained my favorite to this day. And, I, and there are lots of other stuff that he has written that I enjoy, but the Telltale Heart is special to me. And I think a lot of people, um, its I think it's a very popular opinion that a lot of people love the Telltale Heart. Um, I wish I could be like different and cool and be like, no, one of his most obscure, like Dr. Tar and Professor Feather, which I had never heard of before listening to this album. Um, oh yeah, that one's my favorite, you know? But no, it, it, I gotta admit, it's the Telltale Heart. I absolutely love it. Yeah. Um, but you were asking about, um, how I think of the music versus yeah. the story itself. And I have to tell you, it um, I was so excited to hear that there was a, to see that there was a track, you know, The Telltale Heart. I could not wait to listen to it. And I was so let down by it. <laughs> I don't dislike really? the song, um, but I felt like it was too much of a rock piece. Um, too bombastic, if I can even use that word, um, for the very somber elements. I mean, there is, you know, insanity, you know, and um, like Drew referenced, obviously the character is going insane and by the end of it, he's screaming um, to the police. Um, but at this, the setting of the story is just him and this old man who lived together in this home and it's very, it's, you know, very meticulous the way that he plans on killing this guy. Um, so it's just a lot quieter, a lot more haunting um, to bring that word up again. Okay. Then what I think of when I hear this song, um, I completely agree that, that Arthur Brown's voice 
captures the madness and the lunacy yeah. perfectly. All that yeah. screaming, you know, is great. I feel like they could have built to that though, instead of opening with it, because the work actually um, starts more. Um, uh, I mean, I'm using the same words here, but more somber. Um, I mean, the opening paragraph to me is just amazing. It's very like choppy. He's obviously clearly like mad, like he's trying to form his thoughts together mm -hmm. um, at the very beginning, but it's not, and it, so it's like nervous and, you, but it's not loud yet. And it just starts out super loud from the get go. Yeah. It just kind of um, smacks you in the face at the right of the beginning right, of the song. Right. And I didn't particularly enjoy that. It took me several listens to enjoy Telltale Heart. And to this day, it's probably one of my least favorite on the album. Um, which is crushing to me because it's trying to portray my absolute favorite work. Um, yeah, but they definitely captured some good elements. Like we were, you know, like you were saying about Arthur Brown's theatrical voice, which I like your use of the word theatrical there. That's yeah, absolutely accurate. Yeah, yeah. I, I've I've always and just from my my perspective of not knowing, um, the 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 poem. Uh, I did I didn't know any of any of that how the how the story was portrayed. Um, I definitely kind of uh, leaned more towards like this is this, because of the vocals, this is leaning more towards like this, you know, lunacy, crazy guy. Um, the lunatic is on the grass. And, uh, <laughs> you know, but and, and the rest of it, I mean, the, the very end of the song, like I, I didn't know, I didn't know, like I said, it just it, musically, it definitely had more of a uh, story like element to it i felt like because the very end of it has an incredibly it's just this like massive like ending to it it's just a gun dun 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 it's like building and it's huge well, and, and everything and and that's good because the very yeah. end of the piece he just says um i felt that i must scream or die and now again hark louder 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 you know like so makes sense he's hearing the heart of the gentleman that he has killed and hidden under the floorboards um yeah he is hearing the heart in his mind, obviously beating and beating and beating, you know, while the, while the police are coming to search this home, they're not seeing it. They have no clue. You know, he's like, Oh man, I'm pulling it off. And then he's giving himself away by the madness in his mind that he can hear the heart. Um, and eventually rips up the floor floorboards and just yeah. shows it to them because, yeah. you know, um, he is convinced that they know, even though they have no clue. Yeah. That's really interesting. Mm -hmm. I think it's a, uh, it's an interesting song for sure. I, I I wouldn't say it's it's my it's my favorite on on the record. Uh, I don't know what you think about it, Drew, in terms of uh, just the music, kind of how you rate it on on the record. But I I certainly um, have always thought this one to be probably the most unique sounding one on the on hmm. the album. Uh, I I just think that the, the whole Arthur Brown thing and and the this the it had more of a it felt more conceptual than the other songs. It really did. It just felt like they were intent. It felt more intentional. And, and like I said, my perspective, it didn't, I didn't know any of the, any, any of the, you know, the, whatever, any of the poems or short stories. So when I was listening to it, it, it I, de all I did is I picked up on, there's definitely something intentional going on here because it, it felt very uh, strategic and what they were trying to portray with the lead vocal and some of the, uh, like even that, I don't know what it, what you call it. I guess it's the bridge, but it kind of like the instruments kind of go down. Yeah, that's my favorite part of the song. Yes, actually, absolutely. Yeah, so I, I feel like that's capturing a little bit more the droning of, guitar. Yes, yes, and I feel like yeah. that's capturing a little bit more of the actual piece. That's why I enjoy that. Yeah, yeah, I love that, and it's really interesting. And I was like, well, this is this is super unique sounding, and I just thought it was super intentional. I didn't know why, but I just thought it was very intentional. And then of course the ending was like, whoa. Right. Um, it's a it's a very versatile song. And I think yes. uh, it, that that's why you think it sounds so unique is because dynamics are used a lot in this song, right? I mean, oh yeah. Um you would see my eyes go white and cold with fear, right? And then the 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 the, the build up of the drums is the you know, this this big hit in your face. And then it kind of goes back down to really let the rest of the instruments just kind of groove 
very softly while you're really listening to the vocals up front while this guy kind of freaking out. But there's that 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 grooving of the the instruments is still very ominous. It's very freaky. This you know, it's very it's it's you're like something's gonna happen soon. It's this this weird vocal that comes out and freaks you out. And then like like I just said afterwards, this big bow bow. It's whoa! It's in my face. It, oh yeah props yeah. to alan parsons on that too i mean that that production is incredible the yes. backwards symbols with the timpanis and the drums on top of it like it just has yeah. this massive hit to it it's, it's uh, very dynamic and very like you said theatric it gives a lot of of uh emotion and uh just a world that he builds in your head so yeah yeah, I totally understand. It's, I agree with cool. Rachel. It's, it's not one of my favorites, but you know, it's one of yeah. those things where, and this happened in film school a lot, where I'll listen to a song or I'll watch a movie. I'm like, mm, I didn't really care for that. Like, whatever. But then when you actually discuss it with other people and see some of the other things that give it merit as a piece of art, it's it, you can appreciate it a whole lot more. Yeah, that's that's what's happening sure. now. I have a sure, new appreciation absolutely. for the song now. Just thinking about how it was constructed and yeah, yeah. Well, I I definitely have that just because just of knowing now what the story is. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. and, and, and even, even, you know, as, as Rachel kind of disagrees with their portrayal of it, you know, um, it, yeah, it but still has, uh, some, it, I, I get what they're doing kind of thing, well, you know? Yeah. And, and interestingly enough, it's so funny. Part of my opinion is changing even simultaneously as we were speaking, uh, because I've been, you know, kind of scanning over the story and, um, again, it had been a while since yeah. I had actually read the telltale heart, even though it right. was my favorite. Um, and you know, now that I'm kind of scanning, especially, like I said, the end of the story, this madness and this screaming and all that, like it, it really fits. And so even though the song may never like jump up to being my favorite, I think I'm having a new appreciation for the creation of it, yeah. even while we're talking, because you're, you're like, you're right. Some of the elements that are there do fit it maybe even more than I had originally assumed yeah that um, like droning guitar and you were saying where it kind of goes down see what i picture there that is part for sure is the guy dismembering him and then like you know hiding him beneath four mm -hmm. floorboards of that part right that's the part where he's actually doing the deed and he's freaking out and so he's trying to hide it all right and he's right. really really nervous and paranoid that someone's gonna see him and you know um right but yeah. well and you know again one of the last paragraphs of the of it he you know he mentions he uses these words he says i foamed i raved i swore like mm -hmm. that fits with what we're hearing here uh-huh mm -hmm. that's super cool that's really cool let's go let's let's keep moving on here to uh the cask of amontillado or amontillado okay amontillado okay amontillado okay. Montiato. It is a Montiato. They pronounce it they incorrectly pronounce it, in yes. the actual yeah. song. That's, yeah, that's that's why I was mentioning that because I was like, uh, and yeah. that bugs me every time. Even yeah. though this is one of my favorites. Yeah, um, I'm yes, like, no, same. it's a Montiato. Come on, the double L. I learned this in Spanish. It makes the exactly. Y sound <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. So let's let's take a listen to this. Screw it up, John Miles. <laughs> Whoa. By the way, thought I should mention her favorite, Rachel's favorite, is Telltale Heart. If I had to pick a favorite Edgar Allan Poe piece that's a short story, it would probably be The Cask of Amontillado from. Yeah, for I knew me. this one was, yeah. was your favorite. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and I love this song. me too, for sure. That's awesome. Well, I, I, I'd like to, to discuss a little bit about the um, just the music of, of this one because um, it, it's absolutely brilliant the way this song is constructed i mean the elements that we got going on here we got like the um we have the, like we have brass that i don't think that was on any there i don't think there's any other brass on any song on this record well Am no there's definitely on house of usher right when those big hits come in yes yeah yeah of course yeah. of course with all the yeah of course with the symphony like this right here this this is genius to me the way this is constructed. With those uh, kind of those staccatoed 
staccato hits with the uh, with the or- the the orchestra. Um, but also, I don't know if, if you go and listen to this song. Really cool how uh, Alan Parsons kind of mixed the, the the brass. It's super creative. He's he's like it, it. They kind of like shoot up on one side and pan over to the left. So it's like and it kind of just like moves from right to left. So it, it doesn't make yeah. it, it doesn't kind of center it. It kind of like spreads it out a little bit, um, kind of delays it to the left to the left speaker, the left headphone, whatever you're listening to. But it, I, every time I've listened to that, I just thought it was like, man, that is really awesome. And they have the, the cool or the orchestra parts as well as the choir, and everything, and uh, and then more of a centerpiece uh, on the, or a, kind of a more of a focus on the piano in this song. Um, it's a little bit. This is not as much of a rock song, and almost kind of has this kind of ballad feel to it. Yeah, it sounds like a piece in musical theater. Yes, I mean, you know, it sounds like two different characters singing to each other, and I mean, that's what it's supposed to to do. I yeah, think. and and the contrast, like from the verse to to the chorus. Yes, you know, like where it moves. Right. Yeah, you know, I got that stuff. It's like it's starting to build energy, and then it goes right into the brass. Yeah, and it gets so big and intense. It's massive. Yeah, and I well, love so it. it's it's really bizarre. Also, um, I was actually listening to this, and I was trying to think, okay, how this is different, kind of like how Rich was saying, from what I read to what I hear. They're two very different things, and yeah, that's what I like. You said what I really enjoy about this album is that they took their own interpretation. And, right. uh, and set it forth and they kind of did their own thing with it but it still definitely um, is a send-up I think to Edgar Allan Poe um, and this one's bizarre to me because this to me is one of the most I mean he has a bunch of horrifying stories right um, that was that was his thing this one's especially freaky to me because of one the method of killing and two the lead up to it well, what was um, the method so he basically suffocates slash starves the guy. He buries him alive in a in the catacombs, which is where they stored wine. So a quick description of of this piece. Did they this, make a and the motive of this? And the mo- say what? Did they make a movie of this? Of I'm the, sure they of have. Of Montiato? I don't know. It would be a short like movie I've, if it was. I feel like I've seen that. <laughs> well, it would be, be it would be short, yeah. But you know, honestly, the I get a very um, Count of Monte Cristo vibe. Right. The, ca- uh, the oh, yeah. cask of Amontillado. Cool. I don't know if you do, Drew. Um, there's so many. You know, just there seems to be like a rivalry and revenge that's taken. Right. Um, absolutely. I mean, and, mm-hmm. and and as I was saying, the, the quick description of this piece mm-hmm. which is also really bizarre it's also horrifying that he does this to the dude based out of motive simply because he was like that guy's not good at tasting wine i'm good at tasting wine and he thinks he's all good and he's pushing it in my face and i hate this guy screw him so you know what i'm gonna kill him so that's what's really bizarre about this from what i read you can't really glean i couldn't any other motive than that this guy is literally just petty as hell and just wants this guy who thinks he's hot crap like oh i'm the best connoisseur of wine ever and he's like I'm you know i've had wine Basically, basically. And he's like, you know what? I've had enough of this. I'm going to kill you. But, and it's pretty brilliant. He plays off of this guy's weakness, which is his hubris, which is his, uh, you know, idea that he is the best, right? So he lures this guy down to tasting his wine. He's like, hey, I think I paid way too much for this wine. This guy said that it was, and I'm forgetting, Rachel, I don't know if you have the reference right there. It's a certain type of, it's, it's well, it's a Montiato. What am I saying? Montiato. It's a Montiato. I'm so out of it. Sorry. It's a Montiato. He goes, I think I paid way too much for this, but I'm not sure. Is it really a Montiato or is it not? And he was like, you know, I'm going to ask Lucchesi, which is a, another guy in their circle of connoisseurs. And this guy thinks he's the best Fortunato. And he's like, Fortunato's like, no, I'm going to taste it. And because I, I have the better taste, I can tell you better than he could. So yeah, let's go down to where you store the wine. Where is it? By the way, they're at a party while all this is happening. He's drunk as hell. You know, now the main character is lucid, right? He has his plan to kill this guy, right? So uh-huh. he's lucid and clear-minded. But Fortunato is already kind of tipsy, already kind of drunk. He's, you know, drunk off of feeling good. And I was like, I'm going to feel even better now by telling this guy that he's a sucker for buying cheap wine. But I have to at least go down and like taste it first to let him know that he's a sucker. So he lures him down to where they where he stored wine, which was common back then to do in the catacombs, which is also where you buried your dead. It's very cold, very dark, very damp. 
So he lures him down there with very little light. Obviously, they have to have some to walk through, but that's what also makes this part like super creepy. He's walking behind this dude as he's like, no, no, just keep going. It's down there. The, the cask is down there, this, this wine. And uh, he has a nasty cough. And he's like, oh, you know what, dude? You're too sick to do this. Don't. I'll get Lucchesi, right? He keeps playing off of this idea that he's, you know, going to get someone who's better than this guy or someone else. And he goes, no, 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 trust me. I'm all good. Let me keep going. And he's so drunk. He goes inside this little part of the catacombs that he's kind of dug out, kind of this hole in the wall that was barely enough to fit a human corpse. I mean, big enough, but barely. He's like, it's in there somewhere. Then he just starts chaining him up. And this guy thinks it's like this weird joke. He's like, what is he doing? Like, what? But he has no clue that this guy bears any ill will towards him. Right? So Fortunato is like, what's going on? I guess you're playing a joke. Ha ha. But come on, we should get back to the party if you really don't have the wine because everyone's having a good time. It's the season of carnival. And... <laughs> He keeps doing it. He keeps chaining him up. And then he eventually starts to cover stone by stone with the tools that he has down there. He starts burying him alive. And the guy at first still thinks it's a joke. And it, as it gets closer and closer to him being totally you know, sealed in, he starts freaking out. And the guy is just smirking watching this guy freak out. And he's chained him up. He can't do anything. I mean, he... <laughs> And right. he just walks away creepily as the guy finally comes to his senses. So I'm sorry that was such a long description, but it's so weird because that beautiful part where it's the two guys talking each, to each other um, and those really pretty oohs and ahs yeah. in the background, that to me is kind of this guy's kind of drunken state, right? And it's a combination of Fortunato being kind of drunk and accepting what's happening at first. It's kind and of like the main character feeling of... Yeah. And, okay. And, and the yeah, main character kind of having this mentality of just shh, let it happen. Like, you know, go quietly while I kill you. That creepy feeling, right, of a murderer just being like, shh, shh, shh let this happen. That's kind of what it says to me. And then the part where it comes in much more, like you said, with the with the strings in the yep. background and then the, the trumpets dun, dun, coming. Yeah. Yes, that to me is Fortunato coming to his senses and being like, oh, my gosh, he's killing me. Let me out of here right now, you know, and kind of this objective lens. You know, we're no longer in the mind of Fortunato and this guy. We're also in this objective lens of of everyone watching this being horrified. Just, you know, if, if you're looking in at the story, it's like, look at the sheer horror of this. This guy, the the way he's killing him and and the lead up to it, this leading him to his death without him even knowing it. It's it's creepy. And he's like smirking and loving this the whole time. He just wants that's to really, kill this guy. That's really interesting. Yeah, I, I liked how you said that. It was the the verses kind of are are subjective to uh, Fortunato and, but the chorus is objective to everybody else watching this happen. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. That's an interesting take on how that, how that song, how that song lays out. What, what's your, what's your opinion on it, Rachel? You know, I'd never thought of it that way, but I really love that interpretation, Drew. Um, I like that. It was really cool. What I have to say though, is that con contrary to, or contrasted with the telltale heart, I find that this song absolutely encapsulates the um, feel of the story. Get it? Encapsulate? Yeah. I That's don't know. awful. Mm. Such, a, such an awful. I know. Yeah, it's I know. really bad. Um, Too soon. Yep. Shoot. Um, but no, it completely captures to me the feel of the piece because those slow parts um not only do i just absolutely love them and just get lost in the in the melody and just how beautiful the um the singing is on those yeah. um segments but i i just find that how calm and how um quiet and lilting those pieces are is um completely um yeah capturing though the creepy like, like Drew was saying, it just makes it that much creepier that this beautiful melody is being used to um, portray a story about a guy getting buried alive. Right. Yeah. You know, I think uh, part of that, though, is predicated on reading the story beforehand and knowing the reference. Because if honestly, it's been a while since I had read it. But I think for most people, if you're hearing this, and maybe I could be wrong. I don't want to put words in other people's mouths. It's really just kind of quiet you know, and, and pretty, and you don't really think about like what it's based on. And then when you do, like you say, it becomes even more haunting. Yeah. I would so. agree to that because that's, that's yeah. kind of in the position that I'm in with you guys knowing the poems a whole lot more than I do. Um, I'm kind of learning 
because I know the music really, really well. And uh, hearing the the stories after knowing the music, I'm trying to like, you know, create connections in my head. And uh, that was that was just what you what you said was kind of uh, was really interesting with that. But also, I don't know. I feel like it would have been um, more. Actually, I can almost say that about this entire record. There's really only one song that's kind of zany and luna, like just with really just really ridiculous in terms of just like this, this guy is an absolute lunatic. Um, and that's, that's really just telltale heart. Every other one isn't as creepy pink Floyd vibe ish as what I would honestly expect coming from, if we're going to be talking about Edgar Allan Poe, which is pretty dark to begin with. Right. Right. But I, I kind of find the beauty of the fact that the songs are not as dark. I agree to that. I agree with that. Like, I feel like this is a perfect example. I think that if you do know the story, it almost in a way makes it creepier to know that this music that is beautiful and not necessarily creepy, you know, or haunting on the surface, it can be transformed with just understanding the context. You can enjoy it without the context, but you, but you know the context and then it does transform to give more of an effect of probably what they were going for for people that understand the literature. Yeah. But they also did want to make it palatable to people who may never have listened to Poe but or read Poe, but just want to listen to the album and enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's certainly my, my take on it being, you know, just listening to the music and wanting to enjoy the music, certainly enjoy the music. Well, and then it's, there they probably you know, achieved, perfect. you know, what they were going for. Exactly. You know? Yeah. It was just, it was, it's an, it's interesting uh, listening to that. Um, well, thank you for that that uh, description, Drew, of, of the story there, because I didn't know I didn't know that. If I, I'm sure that not everybody obviously knows the story, so that's that was pretty good context for that song. So maybe they'll have an interesting appreciation for it now. Um, yeah, I hope so. So let's let's move on to uh, Doctor Tar and Professor Feather, which is what we opened opened the uh, the podcast with. Um, but let's take a listen to this again and we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it a little bit. Thank you guys for listening. That concludes part one of this episode. Jump on over to part two to hear more about Poe and the music on this record. I'll see you guys there. 